When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest How Could You edition. It's Wednesday, November 26th, 2014. On today's show, we discuss the sexual assault allegations against Bill Cosby with the critic Wesley Morris. And then the film director Mike Nichols has died. To help us reckon with a quite sizable legacy, we each watched a different Mike Nichols film. And finally, what in culture made us thankful this year? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. You just had a birthday? No, it's tomorrow. It'll be, it'll be on the day we air. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Happy birthday. Thank you. And of course, our film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. So here we should announce that I have a bad cold. Dana got two hours of sleep and uh, Julia went on a bender last night. (laughs) Good show. It's gonna be a good show. (laughs) So ready, ready, Our energy is tight. I think it's gonna be good. I'm feeling full of vim. All right. Well, let's just uh, dive right in. Wesley Morris is a staff writer for the wonderful Grantland, and he is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. He recently took part in a dialogue over the Bill Cosby issue. It's called the Bill Cosby issue, the dialogue was, Processing the Fall of an Icon. Wesley, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hi, you guys. Hello. Hey. Well, the numbers here are, of course, grim. Uh, 16 women thus far have come forward to allege that Bill Cosby, the legendary, iconic American comedian, sexually assaulted them with 12 saying that he drugged them first and one saying that he tried uh, to drug her. Uh, so there's a, a dismaying consistency to these stories, to uh, put it mildly. Uh, Bill Cosby, of course, is a pioneer of stand-up. Uh, some people consider him maybe the greatest stand-up of all time. And then on television, of course, he became the personification of fatherhood. Wesley, it's not just that he's the personification of fatherhood. He was the personification of black middle class aspiration for both white and black audiences. It's enormously painful, I think, for all of us to confront this possibility. What's been your reaction thus far? Bewilderment, uh, anger, um, soul searching. You know, there's been a lot of there have been a lot of conversations among journalists about who knew what when they were writing about Cosby. I know that Mark Whitaker is in the very uncomfortable situation right now of having written an enormous book about Cosby and not mentioning or going into any of this stuff at all. Ta-Nehisi Coates has written about not dealing with it. Um, David Carr has as well. I think that my relationship, as, as is most people's relationship to this situation, is, is almost purely cultural. You grew up with this person, and it almost doesn't matter what race you are if you encountered that show, but it is especially um, bizarre to think that this person who, if you grew up a certain way even, I grew up poor Philadelphia, he made you want to be the best version of your That show, and a different world, which I think is slightly more important uh, for a certain generation of kids that I would include myself in, those two shows made you want to be the best self you could possibly be. It made you want to go to college. It made college just seem like a natural thing to do, unless you were Denise. And, <laughs> I mean, Denise, of course, was a special case on that show, too. I mean, like, the, the angel heartness of Lisa Bonet, coupled with, <laughs> with the choices. I mean, she was the kid who made 
other choices. And she went to Hillman for a season of television, but then she kind of disappeared for a little while. But that show was, those two shows were shows that really instilled a lot of lasting values in a lot of people. And the idea that the person responsible for them was, I mean, in some ways using them as a shelter for another kind of behavior, a completely diametrically opposed sort of behavior, is really hard to reconcile. There is something about the cognitive dissonance, and I grew up watching The Cosby Show, too, and feeling differently but similarly about it, like, this is how you behave in a family, this is how you behave as a person in the world, like, the overall sense of aspiration and social responsibility incorporated into this deeply loving and safe-seeming family home was like a centerpiece of my childhood as well. But just in thinking through, I mean, you know, so the broad contours of these allegations were known in 2005. Like people have been aware of this at very reputable outlets. It's not like the National Enquirer talking about John Edwards and, and his like love child. Like, And there was also a legal situation brewing as well. Right. There was a settlement and there was, and that's part of why some people didn't talk about it, but there was a sense of the scope of this issue for a long time that the media ignored. And in thinking about why so many people ignored it for so long, I mean, we just did at Slate a 25th anniversary of the Cosby Show set of stories earlier this year. We didn't talk about it, I don't think. You know, I think part of it is that dissonance, like with some of the other notable figures whose personal lives are less than savory. What they are accused of is not so deeply at odds with the work that you right. just kind of can't hold the two ideas in your head at the same time. Like, right. oh, does Woody Allen seem kind of like a lascivious guy who's like an eye for young girl flesh? Like, yeah, he kind of does. Does R. Kelly seem like he's into weird things in the bedroom? Like, yeah, that's part of the persona. That doesn't make the accused behaviors any worse, and it doesn't really... I don't think should change the reckoning of of how you try and reconcile the two and how you feel about listening to their work or watching their work. But there's something, there's like a continuous narrative in some of those cases. You can align them. They meet up. Yeah. Where this is just so hard to get your head around. I think that's part of why it took so long to kind of crack and feel like an acceptable thing for, you know, so that as recently as six months ago, Mark Whitaker could publish this book and be like, oh, I couldn't you know, verify these stories. So I just didn't include this narrative at all. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I'm really curious about how you... I know that a lot of the hand-wringing that's been being done has come from black writers, particularly black men. And I'm just sort of curious about how you guys feel about, as, as you know, white journalists and, and critics, the fealty, if you have any at all, toward Bill Cosby. And, like, whether it, what's difficult about unpacking this is whether it's any in any way similar to dealing with something like Woody Allen. What I would say, Dana, I want to hear from you next, but just very quickly, I thought your partner in the dialogue said something very smart, which is he equated Cosby with Booker T. Washington more than, he said, really the precedent more is Booker T. Washington than Richard Pryor. In terms of white silence vis-a-vis black silence about this issue, there's a reluctance among whites with something of a historical consciousness about race to impute certain kinds of behavior to black icons, not only because of what J. Edgar Hoover did to Martin Luther King, but because of what white Southerners did to Emmett Till. It's you, you don't, how can you feel emboldened to go near that? It's just the complexity of it is beyond, I think, the normal acumen of uh, someone who doesn't want to sound the exactly wrong uh, note and, and provoke the very worst uh, facts of American history. The second thing I would say is that just in terms of the history of the sitcom, you know, I think white audiences had sort of, they'd gone in a couple of different directions and they were exhausted in terms of depicting the American family. One was a kind of horrible reckoning of the um, 70s where, okay, we're going to reckon really with divorce, alcohol, drug abuse, and to a degree sexual abuse on television because this really mirrors what's actually going on. Or a kind of treacly family ties version of it. And I think having a black family enact an ideal family for white audiences was an occasion to feel a certain kind of, I think, earnest sentimentality about the American family. And that also made people reluctant. But I've, I've talked too much. Dana, uh, jump in. 
Well, I was just going to say that I personally, maybe more so than any of the three of you, had not a really strong personal relationship with The Cosby Show just because of when it aired. It started Mm -hmm. in 84, I believe, Mm -hmm. and it ran through the early 90s. And those were exactly the years that I was in college and early graduate school. had no television, didn't watch TV, and really only came across it much, much later in reruns. So the Bill Cosby that I think of, besides this sort of paternal pudding pop figure of my (laughs) early childhood, it used to be a Sesame Street guest and was just sort of a general benevolent figure who was in kids' shows, as I remember. The one that I remember is this later Bill Cosby, not to do with the allegations, but to do with, you know, pull up your saggy pants, young black man, that kind of social conservative finger wagging Bill Cosby. And so I'm not sure that I I approach Bill, Cos- Bill Cosby with the same kind of sense of youthful reverence or something that, that I hear from people that are maybe a little bit younger than me. And so seeing him suddenly pass into this other realm, you know, to go from the finger-wagging kind of um, social philosopher to someone who has allegedly been perpetrating evil acts over a period of decades was just a a very strange shock, but maybe without that that heartbreak that you feel if that show was really something that was part of your childhood and early adulthood. I also think part of it is just that the alleged methodology that recurs in so many of these stories is so sinister-seeming and also so at odds with what you would assume a very powerful man and you know, a powerful comedian and television star in Hollywood in the 70s and 80s could undoubtedly have found lots of young women to mentor and have relationships with and have extramarital affairs with in a, you know, consensual way that might have played on the power dynamics of Hollywood in ways that were slightly scurrilous. But there's just something about the idea of this beloved father figure being like a sinister druggist taking advantage of inert women and being more interested in that than whatever he would naturally charm himself into that is so repulsive. And it just, it just, yeah. I mean, I think I do have this sense of heartbreak around this idea of, of the Cosby show as this socially unifying force of my childhood in addition to just like an enjoyable entertainment that I, I don't know quite what to do. It's like nobody going to see the Cosby show again? I mean, it seems almost like the smaller question to ask given all the allegations. But No, like, I think that's a, I mean, I think it is not an equal question, but it is not an insignificant one. Yeah. Like, is that show gone? No. I think what, I mean, <laughs> I, I would hope not because I think it's social value and what else was going on on that show was, was in some ways, I mean, the reason it matters so much is because it was so much bigger than Bill Cosby. It sort of transcended Bill Cosby's own Bill Cosbyness. I think what he introduced to America beyond just a sort of normalized black family was black culture in this some somewhat unfraught way. I mean, the people he had on his show, not just black culture, but Afro-Caribbean culture and Latin culture and Shakespeare and, you know, all of the things that, that passed through that show through this essential black prism to the rest of the country and to other parts of the world. I don't think that is a toxic transference. I don't think you have to give that up. I certainly can't unbecome the person I am because of, you know, whatever values I was I got from a show like that. You know, I mean, in some ways, and this is what Rembert and I were wrestling with. I mean, Rembert really struggled with it because he's younger than we are. And I think that Bill Cosby, in some ways, is kind of a member of your family if you're a certain kind of black person. And trying to get past this idea of a member of your family, as in any family, whether it's Bill Cosby or your Uncle Joe, like something like this happens, you kind of have to process what it means that it happened. And then what do you take? And then what do you leave? Um, And I think that was what, you know, the two of us were trying to work out. And I think the thing that I don't have to leave is the shows. I don't have to leave a different world behind. I don't have to, like, forget that that show is as good and as important as it and as groundbreaking as it is. But as far as Bill Cosby goes, you know, what's been alarming to me is the ongoing support for him. These shows are still sold out and attended. These comedy He's on a comedy tour right now. Right. People are going and they are saying, we love you, Bill. We love you. It is mind-blowing to me. I mean, it's kind of like he's drugged us all anyway. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? We're all under his spell and kind of still mesmerized by him. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to watch the spell break and to try and think about what are the social forces that caused it to happen now. Barbara Bowman, one of the women who said she was victimized by Bill Cosby, wrote a piece in The Washington Post arguing that it was because a man finally took up the claim. And she was referring to the comedian Hannibal Buress, who, um, you know, basically did a bit in a comedy show about the fact that everybody liked to collectively ignore these allegations about Cosby and concluded it with the line that he's like, I just want to make it a little bit harder for you all to watch the Cosby show um, or something like that. You know, and I I don't actually think it's the fact that he was a man saying it that caused it to hold this time. Well, wasn't it also the CBS show that was planned for isn't didn't he have a new show in the making? And there was a question of whether or not that should go. Forward, there was an which N- it now isn't. NBC sitcom and a comedy special on Netflix. But I think even before that, I think, you know, so there was this video from Hannibal Buress that went viral, which I think was a key factor. There was also then uh, I think that video may have prompted him to field his first major question about it in a lot in an on air setting um, on Weekend Edition when Scott Simon asked him about these allegations and he went silent. Let I up. can't listen to that again. It's <laughs> it's so painful. I think yeah, perhaps the most painful element of all of this has been his absolute refusal. Right, his 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 apparent willingness to just continue to coast on, as you say, the same story that 16 unrelated paranoid women have popped up with the exact same accusation. Right. But I also think, you know, trying to get to why this is happening now, I think it's just a confluence of all this stuff, right? You have this book out, this book that is selling pretty well, I think. And you have these charges in the air. He's on this comedy tour. I mean, after... For, like during the the initial Ferguson situation in August, he went on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and like had a a really good bit with him. It was weird. He seemed totally out of it. He was the um, first guest on that show. He was the right? first guest. Yeah, and you have those two things. And I think you the, the Hannibal Buress aspect of it isn't just that he's a male. He's a comic that is very popular among young people. And the the in the same way that that Dana, you feel like your relationship to the shows is is different because you were in college at the time and you weren't on a sort of fixed viewing schedule. They weren't a part of your life the way they were for another generation of people. I think there's a generation younger than, than we are for whom those shows don't really mean anything. And I think the idea, but Bill Cosby, of course, is an icon. And I think you have this sort of social media thing. It did not help that his camp, once the Hannibal Barres thing went, and then took off where after he did the show and it hit the internet. The camp, the Cosby camp came up with this Cosby meme, right? It was where a Cosby like, meme generator where right, they had right, sort right. of his face and you were supposed to write little, you know, cute, that, shareable you know, Facebook lines on it. And everybody started to make jokes about right, him being a rapist. Exploding cigar. I mean, it just, I think that there's just, there were too many, there just were too many things happening at the same time for and then you know women started coming forward and i think it just became this avalanche of 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 events i think also it has something to do with a shift in internet culture that leans more toward hearing and valuing and taking seriously the stories of victims and obviously if some people have noted if it's the story of one victim versus one alleged you know perpetrator the internet can't adjudicate that but the ability to share information and share Um, a collective understanding allows a situation like this where you have so many women coming forward with similar stories that it it amounts to something where even though it has not been tried in a court of law, it feels too much to be coincidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely right. I I don't know. I, I it's really surreal to me that we're even having this conversation. And I think the number of things that that are happening make it impossible for you to continue to have a relationship with him at all. Because it's not just the accusations. It's his, as we discussed, it's his response to them. Right. You know, if he had come out and said, you know what, these charges are crazy. If he had, like, if he had vocally denied them. But it's the kind of seeming off and and doddering about it that, that is also disturbing. Like, he can't remember having... It's both offensive and appalling for for Scott Simon to bring these questions to him. Which speaks to this kind of culture, as Julia was saying, of this kind of entitled, almost chieftainhood or something. Right, that he's, right. That he's achieved, he knows he's Bill Cosby. Right. He's achieved some status where, you know, he, he has women at his command and doesn't have to explain anything about it. Right. It's it's very last century or last millennium, sort of, in its, in its perception of otherness. 
One question for you, Wesley. So you talk about how sort of a younger generation of people watching comedy videos on the Internet, I think probably both black and white, don't have the same relationship with The Cosby Show as people our age do. Is that Does that suggest a case for saying, okay, let's let those shows fade into history? They played the role they did for the generation who watched them, but maybe the reruns shouldn't come back on TV land when, you know, once... Cosby is thoroughly discredited. Maybe they shouldn't be rehabilitated. Maybe they were incredibly important for a generation and an age, but they they we don't need to argue that they should speak to future generations. I'm for having them around. I mean, I can't. Right, I'm not proposing no. like burning them all in a <laughs> no, ritual no, no. fire. But... I'm, I'm 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 still in favor of having them as part of the cultural conversation too. I just I mean, don't. We're not destroying Rosemary's Baby, and we're not destroying Annie Hall in Manhattan. Right? right, right. I mean, there's so many. I mean, where do you where do you start with that? I mean, where do you with the with the forsaking of of the result of someone's of the fruits of someone's creativity and, and brilliance? I think that you just you're able. I think most of us are able to carry both. Most people who weren't directly affected by Cosby's maliciousness are able to carry both thoughts at the same time. And as I as we've been talking, I I also think that the shows are just bigger than he is. And I think, especially in the case of A Different World, it's like he has nothing to do with Hillman College beyond like like setting it in motion and letting these characters live on their own. But I think what the shows have given us are too valuable to take back. I also think it's important to separate him. I mean, some people might not be able to do that, and that's totally fair. And I understand where TV land is coming from. Maybe we could draw the line between I'm not going to throw... Annie Hall uh, out of my uh, DVD collection or or snap off the TV if it comes on, but maybe I won't go see the next Woody Allen movie. I mean, there's some there's some maybe. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Between yep, yeah, between supporting fresh work, you know, with eyeballs and uh, and 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 dollars and uh, and completely throwing out an entire pa- legacy from the past. Can I just say I I can't imagine going to these comedy shows now. Right, like watching the Cosby Show is one thing that already happened. Going to see him live right now, I just is like a, a how do you? Sit well, anybody there who's and, doing that is clearly not on the fence about it, right? Anybody who's they going don't have a, is, they, is a supporter, or they might not. They might not even know. Do you know what I mean? I, they might not even know. They bought the tickets months ago. They don't read the newspaper. I don't know, but the idea of going. I mean, Stephen, that's a great point. I just feel like the idea of going to see him or have anything to do with anything that he's currently doing. The idea of watching the NBC show had they put it on the air would not have appealed to me at all. Right. And that would have been offensive. It's a it's a vote of confidence that you don't want to cast. I, I and that seems to me up to the individual conscience of the of you know, the potential consumer. One more thought that occurs to me in the kind of classic calculus of of what do you do about Annie Hall is that you're making an argument for like the social good of these shows in addition to the artistic good. Right? Like Annie Hall is an aesthetically wonderful thing, an innovation of form and a a piece of art that is beautiful in many ways and has interesting things to say about the world, but it's not necessarily, I I don't think anyone would make the case that it has the same social impact maybe as the Cosby show. I don't know. I've pulled people, I've I've tried the Marshall McLuhan trick many a time. (laughs) (laughs) But it just, it does add something to the calculus too of what is the value of these works that you have to reconsider. No, I mean, this is why I would separate out Cosby and put him sort of in a different class. And this is the thing that Rembrandt and I were trying to think about when we were doing this. It's like what he, I mean, Cosby is sort of more than a Woody Allen type figure, right? I mean, it would be as if, you know, Alan's whole one of the commitments to his work was about a kind of I mean, for lack of a better word, a kind of assimilationist Jewishness. Right. I mean, if his active goal was to sort of promote Jewishness as equal and as normal a part of of American life as as anything else, um, does that contribution then do you discredit that contribution because of Sunyi and and Mia Farrow and everything else that he's been accused of in the last 20 years? I don't know. I don't think so. And I also think that it becomes that sort of contribution becomes so much a part of the culture that it becomes inseparable from the way a a certain class of Americans live. Mm -hmm. 
Wesley Morris, will you stick around and uh, twiddle your thumbs for a little bit while we talk about other stuff and then um, endorse with us at the end of the show? Happily, yes. Thank you. All right. That would be awesome. Wesley Morris is uh, a critic for the wonderful Grantland. He won the Pulitzer Prize. uh, And he has a dialogue up on Grantland right now with Rembert Brown called The Bill Cosby Issue, Processing the Fall of an Icon. Wesley, thanks so much for coming on. We'll talk to you in a little bit. Don't go anywhere. Sure. Thanks, Stephen. Steve, before we move on to talk about Mike Nichols, I want to let our readers know about a Slate project that they should be aware of. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age. We're calling them the seven wonders of the modern world. And the idea is that, you know, you can think about the ancient monuments of antiquity, the pyramids, the hanging gardens of Babylon. These are physical structures. When you think about the things that caused awe and wonder in the 20th century and the 19th century, it was marvels of visible engineering like the Brooklyn Bridge or going to the moon or the things that would make you kind of drop your jaw in awe at what the human mind can accomplish and ring upon the world. But our notion is that in the 21st century, a lot of these marvels are sort of invisible. They've become kind of digital. They're these back-end systems. They're less readily perceptible and admirable. You're not necessarily seeing like Hart Crane standing on the banks of the river, like proclaiming the GPS is great. But GPS is amazing, right? It's 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 completely changed all of our lives in this fascinating way. So we're on a quest to name the, the seven wonders of the modern world. Dan Gross is on a quest to find all seven for us. He's named three of them so far, uh, and he's going to be naming the next four over the coming month. To find out more, go to slate.com slash seven wonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. The series was made possible by GE. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Mike Nichols first came to public attention as one half of the groundbreaking improv comedy duo Nichols and May, uh, and then began a successful career as a stage director of some classic Neil Simon comedies. But he really broke through on Broadway with, uh, when he directed Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. His first film was an adaptation of that play starring, of course, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. He then became more or less a household name and Hollywood royalty for the 1967 film The Graduate, for which he won Best Director Oscar. Uh, he made nothing but very, virtually nothing but very good films going forward, if none was quite so iconic as The Graduate, including Carnal Knowledge. He directed Catch-22, on and on and on, Working Girl, uh, La Casual Fall, on and on and on. The list is, is really quite impressive. Dana, let me start with you. You wrote a wonderful piece for Slate about how Mike Nichols had a theory that there were three kinds of scenes. What, what were those kinds of scenes? Yeah, this was the thing that he said often in, in interviews when, when he was asked about kind of his dramaturgical instincts and uh, and how what he carried from, from theater to film and so forth. He said there were three kinds of scenes, a seduction, a negotiation, or a fight. And so I just sort of went through his oeuvre and tried to find some examples of those. And they were so abundant that it really became clear that was his kind of driving philosophy, that he was always looking for the conflict in a scene and trying to figure out how that conflict was played out. Um, well, should we listen to a clip? Sure. Why don't we listen to a fight from... Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is the scene that Dana cited in her obituary, and also, uh, which is the movie that I watched in preparation for this segment. And the only setup you need for this scene, if you haven't seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is that Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor play a married couple in an academic town. He's a professor, and it's the middle of the night. They're having a younger couple over for drinks, and she is going at him. I actually fell for him. And the match seemed practical, too. For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready minute, to retire. Martha. And we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. What do you want? I wouldn't go on with this if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? Would you not? You've already sprung a leak about you-know-what. What? What? About the sprout, the little bugger, our son. If you start in on this other business, Martha, I warn you. I stand warned. Do we really have to go through all this? So anyway, I married the SOP. I had it all planned out. First, he'd take over the history department. Then when Daddy retired, he'd take over the whole college, you know? That was the way it was supposed to be. Getting angry, baby, huh? That was the way it was supposed to be. All very simple. And Daddy thought it was a good idea, too, for a while. Until he started watching for a couple of years. Getting angry? All right. Well, Julia Turner, in five years of doing this show, I've never once given you homework. But I did this time. I said, if you're going to do a Mike Nichols film and have never seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you have to do it. And I'm on the edge of my seat. What did you think of this movie? It's one of my favorites. Um, crap. <laughs> I'm so glad I saw it. it. The performances are amazing. I also feel like you hear so much from this end of 
the historical telescope about Elizabeth Taylor's performance, and I can imagine how shocking it must have been to see her as sort of a frowsy, middle-aged shrew after all the roles she had been known for earlier Especially because she was only about 36 or something at the time, so she had to be aged way up for the part. Right. But Richard Burton's performance is amazing. Like, he really carries the movie, and it's sort of much more his film for the first two-thirds of it in a fascinating way. To be totally honest, Steve, I I find this particular kind of, like, mid-century American drama to be hard to watch right now. I had a similar experience watching Streetcar Named Desire a couple of years ago. Like, the things that were groundbreaking and fresh about these plays then... I think it's harder for them to play a half century later in certain ways. You know, the the like super heightened emotional tension, the passions that are flaring, the like gothic family secret that comes out at the end of the film, I'll feel a little like overwrought or something. But as as a piece as a piece of direction, it's beautiful and fascinating and as a piece of direction of actors to have elicited those performances from those folks, and not just Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, but from George Siegel and Sandy Dennis, who have to hold their own as these, like, pale, blonde, like, milquetoast scrubs, but have to have to have weight as those scrubs in the quartet, it was just extraordinary. So I'm very glad I saw it, even though we okay. can have an offline conversation about this play later on. But do you think Nichols did a good job, as they say, of opening up the play, of making it not feel cramped and stagey? Yeah. I mean, for one thing, he sort of opens out the house. There's scenes in the backyard. There's scenes upstairs, downstairs. They they end up going out for a drive and going to a juke joint. You have sort of a more expansive set of geography that still retains the emotional claustrophobia of the night. And you get a real sense of why these um, this poor young couple is trapped by these demonic <laughs> middle-aged scrapping couple. But I also just think the way that the film traces the emotional turns in in the various relationships within the quartet, to me, is what was most impressive about it. I can't believe you don't love this movie. I mean, I, to me, it's just, it, we're not going to go off on a tangent, but let me just go off on a tangent for one second, which sure. is, the play is so, I mean, Albie's play is just so much more forward-looking, both formally and substantively, than Tennessee Williams is. I mean, Tennessee Williams is part of now the classic American, you know, uh, repertory, you know, uh, of great American plays in a way that feels a little like an old statue uh, or an old warhorse. I just totally disagree. I don't think that that's what this play is at all. There's something, like, deeply, weirdly postmodern about it and and emotionally resonant but i can't force you to share my opinions if i've learned one thing in well, these many years but we'll argue this another time i was uh, really looking forward to loving this movie steve and being your happy your happy 2t but then i didn't <laughs> oh god oh, yeah. you, just, you suffer from too happy a childhood julia it's, it's probably it's... true i mean i did admire it i just was like all oh, these people are shouting in my living room <laughs> it just made me want to go to bed <laughs> <laughs> it's grating and draining. I mean, it's a very, it's like a super emotionally demanding experience. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. So, Dana, uh, I have to- somehow totally forgotten. What movie did you watch? Well, I was assigned to mid-period Nichols. Julia was going to do early. You were going to do late. So I was assigned what's probably actually cinematically his least interesting stretch, I think, of, of filmmaking in the, the 80s. I ended up seeing uh, Heartburn from 1986, which is a Nora Ephron novel, a Romana Clef about her, her breakup with Carl Bernstein that she wrote the script for and Mike Nichols directed. And I think it's really a good example, actually, of this mid-period Nichols and how no matter what period he was working in, he somehow had the pulse of the times. He was making the right movie for that time. As Julia says, there's this very mid-century ethos about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Then The Graduate just sort of is the 60s on the brink of happening, right? The early 60s with Simon and Garfunkel on the soundtrack and this very fresh new star, Dustin Hoffman, in the, the role, somebody who, the kind of movie star who had never been a movie star before. And then in the 80s, he was really, in a way, Steve, I would almost say, even though I'm sure he remained a political progressive during the Reagan years, he was this sort of Reaganite filmmaker in the sense that he was making these films that were sort of like luxury goods, you know, that were beautiful mm-hmm. consumables like Working Girl, Heartburn was one, uh, Postcards from the Edge was sort of one, you know, these mm-hmm. like yummy pastel fictions that sort of had light banter, but they weren't exactly romantic comedies. They really were sort of um, socially conscious dramas while being about, you know, the, the haute bourgeoisie. So Heartburn was very interesting from that point of view. And it also showcased, as does Virginia Woolf, his his talent as a director of actors, which was quite amazing. He had Jack Nicholson in the role as the Carl Bernstein character. 
and who ends up being this sort of snake who cheats on Nora Ephron while he, she's eight months pregnant with their second child. Um, but Jack Nicholson was sort of in the last days of his charming leading man period and not yet into his whatever he is now, the character of himself, the crazy old guy, the kind of Jack Nicholson. Cackling avuncular. Yeah, just Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson, which at least since he played the Joker, I feel like he's just he's only had that to bring to some extent. Right. And he's much less interesting on screen. He's the same guy that you see cackling in the awards ceremony, you know, drunk in the front row. But he's really, really wonderful in Heartburn and at the same time plays this utterly untrustworthy husband and yet someone who you can see absolutely why Meryl Streep is in love with him. And in particular, there's an early moment in the movie when they first discover she's pregnant with their first child where there's almost this improvisatory scene where they both start singing all the songs about babies they can think of because they're (laughs) so happy she's having a baby. And so they sing, yes, sir, she's my baby, etc. They start running through this list of standards. Will Bill, like a tree, he'll grow with his head held high and his feet planted firm on the ground and you won't see nobody dare to try to toss him or boss him around no baggy-eyed beer-bellied bully will boss him around and Jack Nicholson is just incredible. It's just a side of him you never see. He's belting out songs a cappello. It's just a really, really wonderful scene that I think only a director like Nichols, who has that kind of theatrical touch with actors, could have gotten out of Nicholson at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Dana, I agree with your uh, t- judgment about his filmmaking, especially in the 80s when it took on the sumptuousness, uh, really defining a quality of all the movies that he made after the uh, onset of the 80s. So for I, I was assigned late period Mike Nichols and I watched, I I think, the last film that he directed, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, which for a late uh, work is actually a pretty compelling movie. I mean, it it certainly benefits from an incredible performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman as a field officer in the CIA. But the funny thing about Charlie Wilson's War, the signal thing about Mike Nichols to me is his ability to bring you into an adult world and show you the interior of it while also retaining a kind of slightly chill adult remoteness to his own style. Um, So you're sort of a fly on the wall, but you don't feel warmly welcomed and you don't feel as though people are hamming up their, they're hamming up their adult roles within the world a little bit, but only to a certain degree. He was not a product of youth culture, uh, Mike Nichols, as much as his early Hollywood careers associated with the 60s. Um, And so for me, he was just the quintessential Hollywood adult. And in this particular film, there's an amazing scene, which is so quintessential Mike Nichols, right at the end of the film, it may be the second to last or third to last scene in the entire film, where Hoffman, who plays the odd conscience of the movie in a weird way, he just takes Tom Hanks out onto a terrace and he tells him a Zen parable. And uh, maybe we'll play a quick clip from it. I don't want to give too much away, but in that little Zen parable is everything about unintended consequences coming back to bite you in the ass. And it's done so deftly. It's, it's, it's a total absence of moralism to it. And it kind of makes the movie for me. Listen, not for nothing, but, but, but do you know the story about the Zen master and the little boy? Oh, is this some from Nitsa, the Greek witch of Aqualippa, Pennsylvania? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. There's a little boy. On his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse, breaks his leg. And everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his leg's all messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So you get it. No. (laughs) No. Because I'm stupid. You're not stupid. You're just in Congress. Is it a great movie? I don't know if it's a great movie. I, he scarcely ever made a movie that I regretted having watched. And, and in fact, looking over the list, it's amazing to me how many of those movies I would relish watching again. Wit, Angels in America for HBO. Uh, Carnal Knowledge is one of my favorite movies of all time. Catch-22 is a supremely interesting failure. On and on, hard Silkwood, Working Girl. I mean, yeah, I was on, amazed. On on. I say The Graduate. Somehow, looking over the list of movies he'd made when he died, I didn't have them all in my head. And I was just astonished by the range of different types of movies, of different registers of movies, all backed by this intelligence. I mean, the intelligence, I think, to deftly put in that 
to make the connection in the non-obvious way that you point out in Charlie Wilson's War, Steve. But there's just a, a fundamental driving intelligence about the world and where his characters and their stories fit into a larger concept of what is happening on the planet that just animates all of them and makes you feel excited to see any of them. I mean, my husband and I were joking this weekend, like he's directed so many different excellent movies that we were just like, he's directed everything. Like he, he you know, director of E.T., director of Time Cop, director of like, it just seems like any interesting movie. Well, I don't know about Time Cop, but anyway, just like you could, you could just be like, oh yeah, that's Mike Nichols, Splash, that great Mike Nichols movie. Like it just seemed, it got a little dot up, but you know, like it just, the the sheer range of impressive stuff that he did was wonderful. And you think about the kind of big directors now, and they're so known for their own shtick, right? It's like a Coen Brothers movie is is this particular kind of thing. And, you know, a Wes Anderson movie is a particular kind of thing. And a P.T. Anderson movie is a particular kind of thing. And the just the ranginess of his intelligence and interests seemed impressive to me. There must be directors working today who are in this mode, but I couldn't but think I of think them. But I think very few. He's an old-style Hollywood auteur in, in the way that original term was intended, which was not someone who wrote and directed their own films, but someone who took received material within the studio system and produced uh, distinctive uh, films. Yeah, I think that that really does apply. And he had that proteanness of the kind of almost the pre-auteur, you know, just the, the, the Hollywood journeyman director. But I think we also can't neglect, I mean, none of us are big theater people, but later in his life, in a period you, when you associated him less with film and more with theater, he really became a huge, huge force on the stage. I mean, he, and then there again, his range, range was crazy and strange. He did this Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield. It was supposed to be great. I really, really wish I had seen it now. And he directed Spamalot, the, the Monty Python musical. You know, there was sort of nothing that he couldn't put his hand to on stage and turn into something interesting. So that whole protean side of him, including in his personal life, where, you know, he was this sort of ghost-like figure who was an immigrant from Germany, and he had no hair yeah. or eyebrows and wore a wig and false eyebrows every day of his life. Yeah. He was this, you know, this this man who was sort of constantly donning masks and hiding behind them and was sort of fascinatingly elegant, if you ever saw him around town with his wife, Diane Sawyer. You know, one thing I've always wanted to say about Mike Nichols and never had the occasion to say is that a long time ago, I cut and pasted an entire essay by a writer named Bruce Bauer, B-A-W-E-R, I may be mispronouncing his name, uh, from somewhere online into a, a document, so I would never lose it. because, And I actually honestly believe this is the essay from which the TV show Mad Men derives, because it's a beautifully crafted essay about the early 60s as a distinctive and magic moment in American history that that got forgotten because of the later 60s. And his point, Bauer's point, is that uh, the stultifying 50s were finally over. Ike was gone. You had JFK. And the youth movement hadn't kicked in, and it was the first truly self-consciously adult sensibility emerged, uh, uh, urbane and witty. And he takes Nichols and May as his perfect exemplar of the moment. And it did, the essay just strikes me as utterly right, and it shows you the or professional origins of the sensibility that then expressed itself in all of the movies. Well, I'll try to find a link to the essay, and people can come find it on our Facebook page. All right. Well, um, come and tell us what your favorite Mike Nichols film was. Read the Bruce Bauer essay. A absolutely read Dana's wonderful piece about the three kinds of scenes on Slate. Uh, Thank and you, then Steve. tell us what you think on Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All righty. Well, it's that time of year again where we give our famous thanks on the Culture Gap Fest for the thing the previous year that most filled us with a sense of gratitude. Uh, uh, Julia, we've actually never done this before. Yeah, it was like, what, is this a time-honored tradition that goes back to the pilgrims? <laughs> it, it really does. Starting uh, this year. <laughs> thanking for things since two minutes ago. Uh, what, were you, what are you thankful for? I have two slightly twisted gratefulnesses this year. There are things that I have been appreciative of in a complex way that has maybe prevented me from doing them as pure endorsements in one case. And the other is sort of a backtrack on an endorsement. So this is a slightly, in, it's an ingrates Thanksgiving a little bit. <laughs> one show that I have found in my roster. So now that I've fallen into like the parent pit, like you guys, I also watch much less TV than I used to. And um, one show that I watch sometimes is like a little palate cleanser is The Mindy Project. So this is the sitcom starring Mindy Kaling and created by Mindy Kaling, where she plays like a blithe, slightly superficial, warm-hearted gynecologist whose love life is very complicated. And it's a show that frustrated me for a while because I like my sitcoms with a dose of like actual human connection and romance in them. And she 
created a show that was so rat-tat-tat that she literally had a different romance like every two episodes. And so all of the boyfriends seemed super disposable. Like it wasn't a Jim and Pam situation where you were rooting for the yearning couple to like throw off their shyness shackles and actually confess their feelings to one another. It was just like every week there was like another person, which makes me sound like I'm slut shaming <laughs> the Mindy Lahiri character or whatever. But I, it just all of the emotions in the show felt totally disposable. And so I basically stopped TiVoing it and caring about it. And somehow this season, everything's a little bit more centered. Like the characters seem to care about each other and have found their their own emotional centers of identity and it's still an utterly goofy, candy-colored sitcom world that does not rise to the heights of, like, a 30 Rock or anything like that. But it's a it's a pleasant half hour uh, if you're looking for a comedy palate cleanser. How's that for a grudging admiration? <laughs> Ambivalent thankfulness, 2014. <laughs> the other one is, so a couple months ago I recommended Today in Tabs, which is this newsletter by Rusty Foster that's, like, a useful... Oh, yeah, Today in Tabs. You got me into that. I'm thankful for that. Praise the internet. So are you still thankful for it? Yeah, I still open it every time. I still get at least one good link out of it. Why? You're you're backing off from today in tab? I still find it useful, but I'm increasingly finding that what it's useful for is encapsulating this like particular slightly knowing way of reading the internet. Like that there's a little bit of knowing brattiness to it that I find sort of off-putting. Like, it's a little bit smug and knowing all the time. And well, it's put like, it this way. I don't read it for the prose in which it's written. I read it for the, the gems on which I can click that the, the guy rounds up. Yeah, he finds good stuff. And it is useful to understand what smug, knowing people think everyone is thinking about <laughs> on the internet. But I guess that's just what I... Just subscribe to Smug Knowing Quarterly like I do. <laughs> I guess I just... I, I sort of was more genuinely interested in the worldview at first, and then I got kind of sick of it. But it's incredibly useful because if you follow, like, half of the smug, knowing people on Twitter, Twitter, then you can, like, it's so much work. You have to piece together what they're exercised about or what they're, like, smugly making fun of other people for being exercised about or whatever. And now it just comes to my inbox and it's like, oh, good, the smug knowing segment of the internet. I've, it's, like, all wrapped up. It takes me four minutes to figure out what they're on to that day. Um, so that is my revised appreciation of today's <laughs> a, tabs. A, a rich and thankful year for Julia. <laughs> I'm also, okay, wait, I have a third one. <laughs> Smug knowing and slutty and worthy of shame. What's the third? Um, no, I only started liking Mindy once she stopped being such a slut, so okay. let's get that straight. <laughs> um, and the third one is actually doing the show with you guys. And also, sorry, you don't get soul billing here, but also my book club, like especially as you... And I think like a book club could function almost like the show does for people who don't have a podcast empire of their own to put their foot into. But having like a regular date to, you know, read and absorb things and discuss them with people whose opinions you respect and who you care about is so nice. That's such a, such a nice anchoring thing to do in the world. So I'm grateful for you guys and also my book club. <laughs> I'm glad we got sandwiched in between the slut, the book club, and the smug people. <laughs> Look, my book club is excellent company. Don't don't uh, don't be throwing shade. Oh my lord, that was uh, that was a whirlwind right there. Um, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm most thankful for that. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Um, I guess. Well, Julia went so specific. I'm going to do the reverse and go really big and abstract and gauzy. I think that the thing I'm also ambivalent about the thing that I'm thankful for because it's something that I think has been painful and at times annoying over the past year, but that as a whole is a good development in culture, which is that is that I think there's been a marked increase in 2014 of the number of honest conversations being had in the media about really painful topics, whether it's mm -hmm. racial problems, sexism, the catcalling you know, video that we talked about and that we were perhaps rightly called out for not having taken seriously enough. There are all these conversations about sort of competing views of the world and, and competing perspectives and perspectives and voices are getting heard that weren't heard before. And that is causing all kinds of pushback and sometimes melodrama. And it's something that's sort of happening on the web every day. But I feel like there's been some movement forward in at least making these conversations possible to have and not only amongst like-minded people, but sort of in the media at large. So I guess I'm thankful for whatever progress is being made in that department. I absolutely, I 100% uh, agree, agree here, here. And I, I would add to that um, on the kind of flip side of that, the PC shaming that often went along with these kind of uh, dialogues, or at least at attended them as an attempt to induce silence about them, that that worm has turned. I mean, that 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 era, thank God, is over. No, is just I don't. Know. Of, I mean, there's still plenty well, of shaming it's, out it's, there. I, I understand that, that that that's true, but 
there's an impatience with it on the part of the majority of people who want to have the painful public dialogue that I think may have been at least somewhat absent until pretty recently. And yeah, it anyway, just it feels like more people are at least, I agree, Steve, it feels like more people are at least trying to have some kind of productive or constructive conversation than perhaps was the case in the, over the past decade or so. And maybe this is just my own personal effort to try to be gauzy and rosy on a, a week in which we had these very painful protests across the country about the Ferguson verdict and the Cosby discussion that we were having and all of these kind of awful, painful things staring us in the face. But I do feel some movement in the cultural conversation there, and that makes me happy. Hmm. All right. Well, I got three uh, that I'll I'll bounce off of you very quickly. The first is uh, uh, I don't have a, I don't have any opportunity other than uh, as occasioned by this show and by researching my book to consume any culture. But between them, I got a lot of really good stuff for my book. I've read two books this year that were like pr- profoundly like moving and are going to be like, you know, cornerstones, I-, I think going forward, at least in some way or another. The first is the um, strange career of Jim Crow by C. Van Woodward, which in some ways it's a, it's a 1955 uh, book by at the then, I think still fairly young historian Woodward. And it talks about the history of segregation uh, in the reconstruction and post reconstruction South in which he says that segregation actually came quite late. To think of it as an entrenched institution was a mistake. Martin Luther King uh, read the book, and with C. Van Woodward in the audience uh, in Alabama in 1965, said it was the historical Bible of the civil rights movement. It is a dated book, but an amazing book, and it's an artifact from when uh, white people of conscience uh, and uh, black people of courage could uh, uh, dialogue with one another as hopefully they can again. And then the second one was, uh, I, I'm reading comically a book that is as physically large as any book I've ever read, and it's the, uh, how do you say shortened, when they do a... Abridged. What do you, abridged, thank you. Steve has never read an unabridged book before, so he's just <laughs> unfamiliar <laughs> with the concept. He's like, never. Yeah. All right, that's funny enough, I'm willing to keep my little flub in. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the, the joke of it is it's as physically large as any book I've ever read, but it's the abridged edition of the three-volume Robert Sadelsky biography of John Maynard Keynes. Before I picked up this, which is a remarkable biography and a remarkable life story, before I picked up the book, I could not have told you that Keynes was a Cambridge apostle who studied seriously studied the Principia Ethica of G.E. Moore, that he was a central member of Bloomsbury, right? So he's right in there with Virginia Woolf, Clive Bell, had many, many affairs, including one with Lytton Strachey, and then all of a sudden fell madly in love with one of Diaghilev's uh, dancers, a Russian ballerina whose name I'm forgetting now. So he lived this kind of incredible life, and he's the greatest economist since Adam Smith, by consensus. He's certainly the most consequential public policymaker of the 20th century, if not of all time. Uh, And thirdly, his economic theories, which were discredited for purely ideological reasons, are now being fully credited for as as the explanatory mechanism for the current slump. I mean, he just it it, it, it is just a fascinating window into the massive changes that happened really in the interwar period in in England, but then influenced really the entire world. I mean, it's just a great book. And then really, really quickly, the third thing is I went to the weirdest little museum in Paris. I almost always don't enjoy going to see the things you're supposed to see in Paris, but I found something called the Musée de la Chasse et de la Nature. Uh, Pardon my execrable pronunciation. But it's basically a taxidermy museum in the middle of Paris that's done in this slightly perverse and wonderful knowing way it like it's aware of how weird it is to go see uh, a, a shot dead stuffed animals but it's incredibly clever and beautifully presented and it's just a great uh, wonderful little day trip and kids really really love it and get into it but the weirdness of it also it doesn't it's not pitched at all to children it's a wonderful place to just seek out and go to in Paris I loved it you should try it alright well we ended up getting ahead of steam on that topic uh, it was great um, uh, but come and uh, tell us what you're thankful for culturally or otherwise in, in uh, from 2014 at of course our Facebook page facebook.com uh, slash culture All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse, uh, and we've brought Wesley Morris back to talk to us uh, some more. But let's start with Dana. Dana, what do you have? 
this week, I'm going to endorse a, a new song that I think has not yet been released by Alicia Keys, which I just this morning heard a room full of 63rd graders singing this song, which has not yet been released, the Alicia Keys version, but you can hear it on her Facebook page, and we'll put a link to it there on our show page. It's just it's just beautiful. And at this particular moment, this, this week in politics, I would be very surprised if you can get through Alicia Keys' performance of this piano ballad about fairness and justice around the world without losing it. Um, all right, Julia, what do you have? I have a song, too, that's a, a tearjerker in a different way. Um, it's the song So In Love by Curtis Mayfield. And it's just Aww. a great song. It's like a it's a it's not a song about the chase. It's a song about being there. And it's lovely. I don't I should probably have a song endorsement, but I don't. I have a I have a clothing endorsement. <laughs> nice. It's it's good not to have too many songs because then Anne has to pick favorites among more of us when she chooses the outro. Don't think we're not paying attention, Anne. Um, yeah, I always wonder about that, whether or not, like, what the fighting is like to get your your song. It's a total dictatorship. And I keep, I have a Google Doc where I keep score. And I oh, know. Oh, who knows? Like, how many Stevens and how many Danas and how many mm-hmm. Julias have ended the I show. do not actually have such a Google Doc. Um, okay, so it's winter. I find that I have cold feet, and I also have um, I sweat a little bit down there. You know? <laughs> um, and I had to find a pair of socks that were durable and handsome. And it's a sock endorsement. It's a sock endorsement. Our nice. second ever. Nice. Um, so you've vindicated. I I'm into these Japanese socks. They're called Choop. Uh, there are lots of good so- Japanese sock companies. My personal favorite is a company called Choup. They make really great... How do you spell like, that? C-H-U-P. Okay. You can get them any number of places, but I I love... They have great patterns. They're really... They're not overly warm. They last forever. I have yet to get a hold. This is the first company whose socks I've never gotten a hole in. Wesley, and I've I'm tried them all. You, I'm picturing you, you in those in those socks with the split toe and wearing those wooden <laughs> kind of flip-flops like a Japanese grandmother in a Mizuguchi um, movie. You know, I have those socks. But you're not endorsing the split toe socks. I'm not endorsing this. I mean, you have a pair of split toe socks, but these choop socks are just... They're beautiful. And, I, you know, you cuff your pants a little bit so people can see them. I'm not. I'm wearing a pair, but they aren't the kind that, that get a lot of attention right now. They're just gray. Mm. Um, but they're beautiful socks. I give them as Christmas presents and as birthday presents. They're about $25 a pair, but I'm telling you, you will never have to replace them. All right. Well, I am going to step into um, familiar territory and talk about something that I haven't seen or read. But my <laughs> daughter has. <laughs> Julia. <laughs> At least, I thought at least I'd get a scoff out of you. <laughs> the new Beyonce and, video, I assume. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, also really good. But uh, my daughter has recently, my older daughter, has recently become obsessed with anime. And she's uh, just devouring it avidly. You know, Miyazaki, obviously, but also some of the manga. Are they called manga? Yeah, manga works. Uh, she's obsessed with those. She's obsessed with one in particular. T- uh, it was started as a manga, and then it was made into a TV series called Attack on Titan. Um, I've only seen a few minutes of it, but she's so freaking into it. And what I want to know is, first of all, I want to hear from listeners who are really into anime what the really good ones are, obvious, uh, other than the obvious uh, uh, Miyazaki references. But um, Attack on Titan does seem amazing. I get l- incredible offloads from my daughter about um, the plot uh, involutions of this uh, thing, and it does sound kind of amazing. She and I are going to sit... She's a very, very, very uh, precocious illustrator. She and I are going to sit down and do a homemade manga, I think, over the Thanksgiving weekend because we're about to get snowed in. Anyway, uh, not so much an endorsement as a kind of shout-out and a giant question mark, and I'd love to hear from listeners what they think of both this specific one and suggestions for others, and that's what I got. Sweet. I'm excited to see what listeners come up with. Uh, Me too. Um, Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Julia. Thanks. Uh, Thank you, Wesley. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Have you been on once before, though, right? Yes, I came on... By phone. By phone. I remember I was sitting at my desk at the Boston Globe when I got the call. (laughs) (laughs) An indelible moment. Can we also tell listeners that we did not actually make you sit around and, like, silently sit through a Mike Nichols segment because we would have just had you talk to us about it. You, the, the, the like magic of space time. Would they, I would have assumed that I would have gone out of the room or something. Okay, but we recorded out of order. We didn't make Wesley wait around. <laughs> just, I just like don't want listeners sitting there thinking that the poor guy was like sitting in the corner. <laughs> Not partaking in a Mike Nichols We made him face the wall. 
<laughs> I, just, I just want everybody to know that we got as much Wesley as we possibly could. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, thank you, everybody. Great show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. And the managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Wesley Morris. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon, I hope. Mm-hmm.